This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 283. Today we speak with Dr. Michael Kruger about the early text of the New Testament. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed theology. This is episode number 283. My name is Camden Busey. I'm the pastor of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. Got a great group of guys with me today. Let me introduce to you today our panel. We have Jared Oliphant, who is regional coordinator for Westminster Theological Seminary, but he's working out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome back to the program, Jared. It's great to have you. Thanks, Camden. Good to be on. We have with us also Nick Batsig, who is pastor of New Covenant Presbyterian Church in Richmond Hill, Georgia. Welcome back, Nick. It's great to have you. Thanks, Camden. Great to be back on. Yeah, this is going to be exciting. We have a great guest and a great topic lined up for you today, a very important subject. Our guest today, we're welcoming back to the program, Dr. Michael Kruger, who is professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's also now the newly minted president there. Correct, Mike? Is that right? That is correct. Well, welcome to the program. It's great to have you. Great to be back with you guys once again. Yeah, Mike has written or has edited, co-edited a wonderful book here titled The Early Text of the New Testament. He co-edited it with Charles E. Hill, uh, who's a professor of New Testament at RTS Orlando. And uh, this is published uh, from Oxford University Press. Uh, We're delighted to speak about it today, an important subject and a very rich book, uh, a wonderful thing here. You can find a bunch of information uh, about the canon. Uh, Mike is an expert, and there's all sorts of resources online about this. You can find them online. A central place here, his website titled Canon Fodder, which is at michaeljkruger.com. Just a wealth of information, a lot of interesting things going on there. And we don't often speak about uh, the origins of the New Testament and the canon. There's certainly not as much as we ought to here on Christ the Center. So we're very delighted to speak with Mike, an engaging guy and an expert here on the New Testament, because that's what it's all about. It's about God's Word, and uh, we want to come to a better understanding of that. Now, um, before we get started, we should mention also that Mike's written a number of other books. Um, Many of you may be familiar uh, with the book Canon Revisited, Establishing the Origins and Authority of the New Testament Books, which, which was from Crossway in 2012. But he also has one titled The Heresy of Orthodoxy, How Contemporary Culture's Fascination with Diversity Has Reshaped Our Understanding understanding of early Christianity also with Crossway. So you can find all of those things online. Uh, the point website will be michaeljkruger.com. Now, Jared, what do we have lined up for our listeners in coming weeks? Uh, do we have anything we need to mention uh, before we actually get into our subject? I know there's a lot going on um, in the summertime. Uh, what do we have for the listeners? Yeah, uh, well, PCAGA will be coming up in a couple weeks, and uh, just wanted to let them know um, I'll be there. I'll be with uh, Westminster at the booth, and um, I think all three of us PCA guys are going to be there, so we can continue this uh, conversation on canon there, mm. make it a date. Uh, so, yeah, um, that is going to be June 17th, the week of June 17th. That's a Monday, so probably around you know Monday through Friday is when uh, I'll be on the scene. On the scene. Wonderful. Yeah, that should be an exciting time. Uh, PCAGA is always a happening place, as it were. Uh, so if you're <laughs> yeah. interested in uh, following up, you can always use our email address to connect people. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with somebody um, when you're at the, at the General Assembly, you can email us at mail at reformedforum.org. We'd be happy to forward your email or message to anybody you'd like to get a hold of. Um, I'd also like to mention that Christ the Center, of course, is listener-supported, and uh, we would encourage you to visit us online at reformedforum.org slash donate to pledge your support today. Uh, We really rely on the generous support of all of our listeners and viewers to help us continue to produce and distribute all of our programs, all of our resources free of charge. Uh, We love doing it, but we need your help. So visit us online today at reformedforum.org slash donate to pledge your support. We want to thank everybody for their support of everything we do here at Reform Forum and this particular program, Christ the Center. 
Now, Jared, I was so excited to see uh, this title come out, and uh, thank you for setting this interview up. And we have before us, of course, this great book from OUP, co-edited by our guest here, Michael Kruger. Um, Jared, what were your first impressions when you saw this title and, and opened it up and saw the wealth of material inside of it? Yeah, well, you know, I um, obviously wanted to have Mike on to talk about it, but uh, I guess with a couple of qualifications, I should let the, the listeners know, and, and they'll know as we get into the conversation, that it, it is definitely a technical book in a specialized field of canon studies. So I thought, okay, would it be worth to, to do an episode on? I think it is uh, for a couple of reasons. One, um, to give our listeners just a peek into a book that's um, that may be somewhat kind of out of reach, either technically uh, in a specialized field or even financially. It's it's a, a little costly um, if this isn't your area of expertise. Um, but, you know, the second reason is um, maybe to give some people a preview of a book that they can check out at their library um, if they want to see if they, you know, um, are wanting to look into this uh, maybe for a further degree or just uh, to write a paper or just, you know, just their knowledge. So I thought it would be good to at least inform people of what's going on in canon studies. And this is a, a great book to kind of be a launching pad into some of the technical information. Yeah. We're never ones to pull punches here or to, or to uh, hold back in any technical terminology. It's just unfortunate. Most of our uh, areas of expertise fall under, uh, you know, systematics and apologetics and sometimes church history. So that's why I'm so excited to get some biblical studies uh, topics going mm-hmm. here. Uh, Mike, as we get started, what are, what might you say are some of the prerequisite, you know, portions of knowledge and terminology that, that are presupposed in this book? What level of person is, is this, is this targeted directly at New Testament experts or people maybe with a seminary degree or who might uh, find value in this book? Yeah, well, unfortunately the list is pretty short uh, in that regard. Uh, Just to sort of make fun of my own book for a moment, uh, Jared was overly nice by saying that it was just a little out of reach cost-wise. The book, I think, is uh, on Amazon for around $150 now, and I think that's even discounted. So it's not a very accessible book uh, monetarily. But I think the monetary price just reflects its accessibility in other ways, uh, which is it's a pretty restricted uh, target audience and a pretty restricted topic. And let me explain what I mean by that. Mm. There's a whole world out there of scholars who study the transmission of the New Testament text. It's a very uh, uh, sort of academic field known as textual criticism. And this book uh, basically dives way down the rabbit hole of many issues related to that, more than most people probably uh, would ever want to go. Now, of course, that doesn't mean it's irrelevant for our listeners. It just means it needs to be sort of distilled down right. uh, in a way that they, they understand why it matters. Mm-hmm. So the book is really written for scholars. It's written for the academic community. It's written for PhD students and probably seminary students to some extent as well who are interested in these subjects. But um, it, it definitely has a much different target audience than, than my other books. Um, and certainly a much different target, target audience than, than perhaps most people's uh, normal reading habits. Well, I think it's also a testimony to your ability and your breadth because you can produce a book uh, of such scholarly rigor, but also write things that are tremendously helpful to people in the pews, such as your book, Can Revisited. So I encourage you to keep doing this sort of thing, but also uh, keep the breadth in mind. should also mention that you're involved in a local church, right? You, uh, you were installed as a pastor uh, down there in Charlotte. Is that right? That's right. For the last uh, 11 or 12 years, I've been part-time on my church staff at mm-hmm. Uptown PCA here in Charlotte. Uh, and uh, even though I'm a full-time professor, uh, stay active in the local church as much as I can, teaching, preaching, uh, ministering there. I, I'm really convinced that having a foot in both worlds, both the academy and the church, is critical to uh, to ministry. And yeah. so it's something I've been committed to for a while. Well, thank you for that. And I think that's a great testimony to you know the purpose of academic study and theology and also studying the Bible in the first place. The reason we do it is for the building up of God's people and to know our Savior better. Um, as we get started, can you remind or maybe even introduce some of our listeners to some of the the major early texts like Codex uh, Sinaiticus and others? And where are, are these available online? If anyone wants to take a look at them, where might they go to find out about some of these early uh, portions of Scripture? Yeah, I mean, one of the neat things about this field is that you get to look at early Christian manuscripts in a whole new light. Um, 
even though text and canon issues are related, they're also distinctive. And what I often tell my students, and I'll mention it here, is to distinguish between studies in textual criticism and studies in canon. Uh, canon has to do with which books are the right books, or another way to say it is, do we have the right books? The textual criticism issue is not so much do we have the right books, but do we have the right words of those books? Now, obviously, they're related, and they overlap to some extent, but you can have the right books, uh, but still have a question about whether you have the right version of those books. And yeah. so textual criticism is another layer deeper into the question of the pre preservation of Scripture. So is Scripture preserved at a book level? And then the next question that you ask is, is the Scripture preserved at a textual level? And that's really what this book is designed to do. And when we want to ask questions about the pre preservation of text, we look into the ancient manuscripts and want to know what we see when we go back. And just the broad outline of that is that we have manuscripts that date back as early as the second century. Now, of course, the New Testament was written throughout the first century, the last book, probably Revelation in the middle of the 90s, although we don't know for sure the date. Uh, so to say that we have manuscripts of the New Testament, or at least portions thereof in the second century is pretty compelling. Uh, most people may not know that that's a pretty rare thing. To have manuscripts that date within a century of their production wow. that long ago is just simply unheard of in the ancient world. In fact, I don't really know of any other manuscript in the ancient world that, that is, is like that, uh, to have such a narrow gap of time between the writing of a document and our earliest extant copy. And so the New Testament stands out uh, as distinctive. A few highlights, of course, one of the most obvious is the earliest copy of the New Testament we possess which is a fragment by the name of P52, uh, that is a copy of the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 18 to be exact, um, that still ranks as the earliest fragment we have around 125 AD. Mm. Uh, another highlight is a fragment by the name of P66, which is also a copy of John from the late second century. We have almost the complete volume of John's Gospel from the late second century. Now just pausing on that for a moment, that's a pretty stunning thing to say. So about 100 years after John was written, about a century later, we have a complete, almost a complete extant copy. Mm. Now, once again, in our little lives, 100 years sounds like a long time, but in antiquity, that's really a drop in the bucket. And that's an amazing amount of preservation for that gospel. We have a lot of assurance that what's there uh, is really what was originally written by John. And so it's an exciting thing to see. Mm. I can keep jumping into more manuscripts if you want. Let me know how, how much detail here, but those are a couple of highlights from the second century. Well, just for comparison's sake, you know, let's let's talk about Greek classics. Of course, not exactly mm -hmm. the time period of the New Testament, but uh, you know, somebody like Plato or, or something like that. What's the manuscript evidence, and and how close is that to when those were most likely written? Or I was going to even mention Josephus. I Josephus mean, we would be a better him a example, lot, but I don't yeah. know the earliest uh, copy of that, if or if you know that. Yeah, Josephus, I actually discuss a good bit in my uh, book, uh, The Heresy of Orthodoxy, in the mm -hmm. final chapter. Josephus is a good gauge. If, if you look at some of his books, say Antiquities, which is one of his most famous works, um, the average date of any copy that's useful is about almost a thousand years. Uh, I believe the, 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 the first sort of uh, reasonable copy we have of Antiquities is from about 900 AD wow. Um, wow. from the first century. Um, I think we do have some fragments from around 500, but they're pretty minuscule. Um, and so really, we don't we base almost all our understanding of Josephus's work on manuscripts from the 9th and 10th century. Yeah. Now, that is uh, of that sounds like a long time, but actually that's fairly typical. Yeah. When you look at ancient writings, the, the gap of time is usually between 500 and 1000 years between the time of our ancient manuscript that's extant and the and the time of the production of the book. Wow. Well, that's a helpful comparison to see how good uh, the manuscript evidence is and the testimony is in in the New Testament. That's incredible. Well, not incredible in the literal sense, <laughs> but it's it's great. I'll put it that way. <laughs> so, what are some, what are some other uh, early sources here, uh, just for people to hang their hat on? Um, what are some of the other papyri and codices, yeah. early versions of the New Testament? So these, uh, these numbers are going to start fogging up in people's heads here, but I'll, I'll go through the list. Uh, a third example uh, of a highlight is, is actually a trio of manuscripts known as P4, P64, and P67, which are fragments from Matthew and Luke. And when we compare these fragments, we can see that these are probably fragments from the first full four-gospel codex dating to the end of the second century. So we have actually manuscripts from the end of the second century that are from our first fourfold gospel collection. 
Now, several things about this manuscript are interesting. First of all, uh, it tells us that the Gospels were circulating as a fourfold unit by the end of the second century. There was really no doubt about that patristically. We have a lot of evidence that that was the case. But in terms of manuscripts, it's pretty nice to have at least some copies or at least fragments thereof of the fourfold gospel. The other thing to note about it, uh, about this mag manuscript trio, is that uh, the, the, the scribal quality is very high. The manuscript uh, exhibits a very sophisticated scribal hand. There's two columns per page, which is quite advanced. And it's also what's called a multi-choir codex, which means uh, you have multiple uh, leaves of the codex folded uh, on top of each other, uh, just like a modern book would. And so this particular manuscript, uh, again, there's really three to see together, 464 and 67, really tell us a lot about the development of the text uh, at the end of the second century. Mm. Uh, pausing on this for a moment, it's interesting to note that uh, the most popular books, Christian books, we have during this time period are clearly Gospels. And above and beyond that, the most popular Gospels are John and Matthew. That's just worth noting. It uh, doesn't mean that people thought that they were more inspired than other books or something like this. It just simply means that it's interesting to note what people read the most. And people read the Gospels by far the most. Uh, and then among the Gospels, it was John and Matthew were the most popular. Hmm. That's fascinating. I'm noticing that there's uh, a, there are chapters on that. Um, chapter 5, the early text of Matthew, and then chapter 8, the early text of John. I was wondering if you could speak to the process of just coming up with this book, um, how you conceived of it from the beginning, um, how you were able to get uh, a lot of these people to write on those specific chapters. There may be some familiar names, like Peter Williams, I think some of our listeners may have heard of, but um, some may not be familiar. And so, could you comment a little bit about the topics and then the people that you chose to write on the topics? Yeah, uh, it's probably important for the listeners to understand that this may be a different kind of book than most of the books that you guys do, for the simple reason that it's not a distinctively evangelical book. And what I mean by that is that this book wasn't published by Crossway, it wasn't published by PNR, it wasn't written only by Christians. Yeah. Many of the chapters are written by scholars of New Testament textual criticism that are decidedly not Christians. Now, some of them are, are, are non-Christians but aren't really hostile to evangelicals. Some are uh, in this collection, uh, but for the most part, the collection is a mix. Some evangelical scholars and quite a few non-evangelical scholars in the same volume. I think it's really important to note that because one of our goals in the volume was not just to have a volume written by Christians, but to have a volume written by the leading experts on the text of the New Testament in the world today that we thought could make a contribution to the, to the issue. Um, many of these people are Christians, but I think there's something to be said by writing a scholarly piece with a mixed uh, group of authors. I think it's also important for the audience to know that just simply because when you read one essay, it may come from a different perspective than another essay in this book. It's not meant to be uh, everybody on the same exact page. And so I think that's an important thing uh, to note. The other thing to note about the book is it's really divided into three parts. Uh, if you're going to understand the sort of world of textual criticism, these are the parts that, that really make a lot of sense. So part one is sort of uh, the background of book production. How were books copied in the ancient world? How are they transmitted? How were they sold? Who did the copying? How reliable was the, was the scribal networks? Uh, things like this. This is really the area that I'm interested in, and it's the area that I wrote my own chapter in. The second part of the book deals with the actual uh, manuscripts themselves in terms of the individual portions of the canon. So we have a section on each of the Gospels. We have a section on Paul. We have a section on the, the Catholic corpus. We have a, a section on Revelation. These are all designed to give us the state of the text for each portion of the New Testament canon. And then the third portion of the book is a, a book on what we can glean about the transmission of the text from the church fathers. In other words, when the church fathers quoted from the New Testament, does that tell us anything about the state of the text? Does it tell us anything about how reliably it was copied? Can we tell what kind of text they were using? Things like this. And that's a very complex process. And so the third portion of the book deals with those issues. And so that hopefully gives you a good outline of the three different interrelated issues in textual criticism. Um, those all uh, uh, influence each other and affect each other. That is useful. Now, you, you mentioned the scribal tradition, and, and we can note many of the different changes that might have happened as scribes copied the New Testament. Whether or not those were intentional is another question. Um, who are some of the scholars that have studied this, and how have uh, 
the Academy's views of scribal changes changed over uh, recent years? Yeah, well, this is sort of the, the bread and butter of textual criticism, right, which is analyzing scribal changes, discovering why they're made and whether we can recover the original text. Um, you know, the, the idea for many, many years within textual criticism is that the vast majority of scribal changes were accidental. By the way, that's still the view of the majority of textual criticism, is that the vast, vast majority of scribal changes are simply mistakes. Scribes make an error. They misspell a word, which was very common and the most common error we have. Uh, They leave a word out or they replace it with a synonym. Um, uh, They do a variety of different things in terms of word order and uh, and so on. Um, You know, the types of scribal changes that are pretty common in manuscripts are the same kind of changes that you would make if you tried to memorize a verse of Scripture. If you tried to memorize a verse of Scripture and, and, and say it back, You'd probably say it back pretty close, but you'd probably change a few things. You'd probably leave out a word or flip the order of something. And sometimes scribes did something very much like that when they copied books. And so most changes are just simply accidental. But then in recent years, some scholars have highlighted intentional changes. This, the main guy who's done this is Bart Ehrman in the modern day, but he was preceded by many other scholars before him who highlighted this. J. Rendell Harris, Kursop Lake, and then J. Eldam Epp would be the, would be the main one. Uh, who's done this. But Ehrman says, hey, look, it's not just that scribes changed the text accidentally. Often they did it on purpose to try to make it sound more orthodox, to sound more right. Um, And uh, Ehrman is exactly right about this. Um, I've said in many of my books that he's correct. Scribes did do this from time to time. The only thing I disagree with Ehrman on in this regard is whether it matters at all that scribes did this. Um, I point out numerous places that, yes, scribes changed the text for theological reasons, but there's no reason to think that really affects the integrity of the New Testament because we can spot it when it happens. Uh, And that, of course, is the main issue in textual criticism is knowing when those changes get made. I did want to ask about the technology and the state of the book trade. Um, How how were books produced? Uh, How were papyri and manuscripts copied? What was going on here? This is, I guess, a Metzger-esque question. Yeah, uh, early Christian book production is a fascinating uh, area of study, and as I noted earlier, tends to be the area that I have done most of my work in. I didn't write an essay in this volume on that issue. That was done by Harry Gamble. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, it's a fascinating chapter. He's got a wonderful book uh, that everyone ought to read called Books and Readers in Early Christianity, and it's probably the book today on early Christian book production just how books were made and, and, and who, who made them and, and how they were sold. Um, this is a fascinating thing, and I don't know how much detail you want to get into this, but there's, there's good evidence that within the first few centuries of Christianity that book production was fairly sophisticated. They understood how to put books together in fairly developed ways. The technology was fairly advanced. Um, part of the technology that early Christians used was the use of what's called the codex, as opposed to the roll. Yes. So yes. In, the ancient, in, in the ancient world, most books that we think of that are literary pieces were written on rolls, or what we might call scrolls, or writings on one side of the papyrus or one side of the parchment, and then it's rolled up to protect the text. Well, Christians didn't write that way. Christians wrote on codices, which, is, which means they wrote in the standard leaf book format with writings on both sides of the page. That technology, I think, is very fascinating to observe because it tells us a lot about the way Christians use their books and the way they produce their books. Um, and, and we can jump into those things if you want. But I think that the key to note here is that the Christians wrote with a very distinctive book technology. They didn't, they didn't do their books like the Jewish uh, culture did their books, and they didn't even do books like the Greco-Roman culture did their books. They did books in a completely unique way by using the Codex. And there's a lot of Marshall McLuhan media ecological type of questions that arise from changing your technology there because you can jump around you can't jump around in texts or move to a distinct book if you had the whole thing on one giant scroll for instance but that's probably pretty far afield from where we want to go uh in this conversation but nevertheless it's quite interesting yeah well let me just mention one quick thing on that Mm -hmm. item that your listeners might have an interest in and that is the question of why Christians did choose the Codex as mm-hmm. opposed to the role of words, what motivated them. I'm convinced, and I've said this in my other works, I'm convinced that it it's coincides with the origins of the New Testament canon. In other words, the, the choice for the Codex was the ability to hold together uh, in one volume yeah. multiple books that Christians saw as related to each other. Um, I think the best shot at explaining this is probably the, the, is the Pauline letter collection. Uh, no doubt that, that Christians wanted to hold more than just one 
book. They wanted to hold all Paul's letters together in one spot, something a scroll really couldn't conveniently do, mm-hmm. but you could do in a codex. And so many scholars think, and I'm, I'm including myself, many scholars think that the, 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 the collection of Paul's letters that Christians wanted to have in one place was the motive for using the codex. Mm-hmm. What was the state of um, just copying, for instance, and, and the integrity of the text? Uh, Harry Gamble does bring up the point that there's no copyright laws <laughs> at the time. Yep. And um, how reliable would a book be or a text be once it had been passed through a whole host of different scribes? And if you came across a copy of a book, how confident could you be that you had what the author actually wrote? Uh, it, the, the answer is it depends. And let me explain. Um, the copying world in, in, in the first and second century was a mixed bag. And so some people did copying very professionally and with a lot of integrity. Some were sloppy and, 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 uh, and poor copyists who were unprofessional in their trade and didn't really know what they were doing. Others would copy in such a way as that they would uh, basically interpolate text into the writing and change it for their own purposes. Mm. Um, and sometimes they would uh, uh, basically try to pass off a work under uh, someone else's name or they would add things to a person's work that they never really said. And so these things did happen from time to time. And so when you pass that over into the Christian world, one has to ask the question, well, did these sorts of things happen in Christian texts? Did you have unprofessional copying in Christian texts? Did you have anybody who had their own little agenda in Christian texts and changed things from time to time? And the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, We did have that happen with Christian texts, just like you would have with Greco-Roman texts in the ancient world. Here's the key, though. How do you know that's happening uh, when you pick up a, a given manuscript? The answer is if you pick up one manuscript, you don't know. Mm-hmm. You just don't know. You can't. Mm-hmm. But if you have multiple copies of a manuscript and you can trace those multiple copies over geography and over time, then you can reach a much more firm conclusion about whether the copy you hold is a good one or a bad one. And when it comes to the New Testament, we have lousy copies. You have some copies that are terrible, all kinds of mistakes in them. But the good news is we have so many other copies that are good that we can spot the lousy copies and know they're lousy. And that, I think, is the key difference. Dr. Kruger, I know this might be off the subject a bit, but I know I, I've had a friend who um, who used to talk about the condition of the manuscripts and how that affects our reception or rejection of them. And there's so much here. I, I just can't even keep all of the variables together, but... Does that does that matter? So, for instance, if um, if scholars found a you know a text from the third century and it was in exceptionally good condition, would they ever argue from that that this was not used and therefore um, not just the internal copying itself, not just the the um, the wording itself, but the condition of the manuscript? Would that play any role in in them making a decision? Oh, that's a very fascinating question, uh, Nick. I'm, I truthfully haven't heard much about that in textual criticism. Um, and I think one of the reasons that we have, uh, maybe that I haven't heard about it much, is because we, we don't really ever find manuscripts in that great a condition uh, before right. the fourth century. Um, prior to the fourth century, everything we have is very fragmentary uh, and, 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 and very limited. We do have some manuscripts that are almost complete, like I said, P66 of the Gospel of John. We have some others, but for the most part, Pre-4th century manuscripts are, are limited in number and in terms of uh, uh, any sort of uh, pristine preservation is just unheard of. Now, okay. once you get into the 4th century and later, you do have better preservation, but that happens to do not so much with um, uh, any belief that they were used or not used, but just basically has to do with the improved book technology and the degree to which they were kept uh, probably in a monastery somewhere for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Um, I'm not sure I've ever heard of an example of someone looking at an ancient manuscript and saying, that's too nice, therefore no one used it, therefore we shouldn't consider it. I've uh, never heard of that. Okay. I had a, a follow-up question on on some of the later uh, manuscripts. Can you give us a sense of um, maybe what uh, Augustine's Bible might have looked like? Um, what was he dealing with in terms of the text that he was looking at? Um, is Is that an answerable question? Sure. Um, and it depends on what you mean by his Bible. I, I assume you don't mean canon. I assume you mean text, right? Yeah, right. Other, right. Uh, not so much which canon did Augustine have, but which text was he using. Here's the interesting thing about the patristic writers is that for the most part, and Augustine, is, is, this is true for him too, for the most part, textual critical issues just didn't come up all that much in, in the early church fathers. 
meaning that on a comparative level, most church fathers had a copy of a book in front of them and pretty much assumed that their copy was what the book was. And they didn't think about it. They didn't really argue that their their copy was illegitimate or worry much about it. Um, and, and so what that means is that for, for, for the most part in the early patristic writers, uh, they never really felt like there was illegitimate copies that were a major problem. Now, there are exceptions to this. We do have instances where some authors complain about poor copies or they complain about variants in their copy. So we do get this from time to time. Origen is a famous example of this. Even Irenaeus in the second century complains that one of his copies of Revelation has a different number than 666, but has 616, mm. uh, which is pretty, pretty interesting to note. Um, yes. And uh, the 666 versus 616 is probably the people had all kinds of theories yeah. about why right. manuscripts said that and didn't. But the point is, you do have occasions where, where church fathers observe textual disparity. But nowhere does any church father present some sort of angst over whether they have the copies or that they, whether they have a sufficiently reliable set of copies to know what God's word is, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah. Somebody listening to this show is going to say, 616, I get it now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah somewhere some bells are going off in someone's head. Somebody's going to sure go get a new cell phone number because that might <laughs> be, be their like, zip code wrong about or their area code. <laughs> Sounds like an area code, doesn't it? They'll take off their tinfoil hat first, I, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Now, the, the uh, another essay here speaks about the Catholicity uh, in early gospel manuscripts, or at least finding indicators of it. What what does uh, Mr. Charlesworth here mean about Catholicity, and how does that apply to uh, this these textual studies? Yeah, what, what a wonderful article uh, here by Scott Charlesworth. He did a great job of showing... Uh, uh, what we would call unity uh, and harmony and organizational uh, structure to the way early Christian books were copied, particularly Gospels. So when he's talking about Catholicity, just by way of clarification for the listener, he's not talking about doctrine here. Uh, this is why in the title, Catholicity is in quotes. He's not talking about the doctrine containing these manuscripts. He's talking about the fact that the way the manuscripts are designed shows that they were all produced in the same way, and, uh, and produce intentionally to, to, to have the same structure. So that suggests a highly organized scribal society amongst Christians. Uh, and it may even indicate scriptoriums uh, at a much earlier point than many people have been willing to acknowledge. Most people don't think there were scriptoriums before the fourth century. Um, I, I, I tend to disagree with that. I don't know if we could say there were full-fledged scriptorium uh, earlier than that, but I think there's clearly uh, literary centers where manuscripts are copied in high quantities and with some degree of, of unifying qualities. And let me tell you the kind of qualities he points out, which I think are exactly right. One of the qualities he points out is size. There's a remarkable preference for certain sizes of gospel manuscripts. And for the most part, they were quite big. In other words, they were used for public reading, which suggests they were used in worship. A second example he gives of, of a unifying factor is the fact that all the manuscripts have certain abbreviations called the Nomina Sacra, the sacred name. And that's probably a topic that we might want to come back to, because I think that's a very interesting aspect of manuscripts that we could talk a lot more about if there's interest. But the point there is, is that manuscripts, all early Christian manuscripts have the same abbreviations of, of God's name and of Jesus's name. And then the third thing he notes about uh, these early manuscripts is, of course, the use of the codex that they're all on codices and not on rolls. Now, when you put those together, size, codex, nomina sacra, you don't get that, you can't just get that randomly. It's not like every scribe in Christendom all decided to wake up one day and say, you know what, let's do it on codices, let's use the same abbreviations, and then let's all make them the same size, um, or at least in a range. And, and he suggests, hey, this suggests a high, high uh, amount of organization with an early scribal activity. Yeah, that's actually quite compelling. Yeah, I think it's a great article, um, and uh, he, he's saying, look, you know, that, that presents, uh, that, that, that type of Catholicity presents some real problems for some of the, 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 the Bart Ehrman-type reconstructions, you know. Bart Ehrman and his, his, his uh, fellow scholars out there will say things like, early Christianity was a total mess, no one could get along, no one was agreeing, everyone was doing their own thing. There was not a consensus about anything, including book production and so on. But when you look at the manuscripts, that's simply not ca the case. It seems like there's a high degree of unity about how to make a New Testament book. And that suggests that Christians were not just uh, uninterested in canon or in, uninterested in text at this point. It suggests that they're very textually conscious mm -hmm. at a very early point. Mm -hmm. 
Now, Dr. Kruger, in your chapter, Early Christian Attitudes Toward the Reproduction of the Text, you go through both the internal witness of Scripture and then also um, testimony of men, like you've mentioned, Polycarp and Irenaeus and um, other early church um, figures and how they viewed the um, how they viewed the copying, how they viewed the the text and the um, manuscripts themselves. And I wanted to ask you at the outset, um, is there, and I'm imagining you'll say yes to this, but is there a, a priority that we give to the internal testimony, the self-attestation of Scripture, um, to where that carries more weight? So what you mentioned about Second Peter, what you mentioned about First Timothy 5, that that would carry more weight for us as evangelicals than even going outside and looking at what Irenaeus and them have to say? Uh, yeah, I would say that's probably fair. I mean, I think it, it's probably a general statement that we could say that for Christians, anything Scripture says is going to hold more weight than than what's outside of Scripture. So I would certainly agree with that. Um, I think, though, the way I wrote the chapter was a little bit different than that. Obviously, I wrote it more from an historical perspective, simply asking the question, when we look at early Christian writings, what was their attitude to the reproduction of Scripture? Now, some of those writings ended up in our New Testaments, Second Peter and so forth, and certainly I personally think they're Scripture. But for the point of the article, it didn't matter whether they were Scripture. For the point of the article, I was simply saying, here's an early Christian writing mm -hmm. that gives us an indication of the way early Christians viewed the reproduction of their writings, reproduction of particularly of Scripture. And so in that sense, I was looking at it more broad-based. So in, in that way, I could certainly use Paul and Galatians, but I could also use Polycarp, both as evidence of first and second century Christian attitudes to the reproduction of their, of their sacred writings. Um, but yes, I mean, if I were to ask to say, which ones do I take more seriously, then needless to say, I'm going to take the scriptural ones more seriously. Uh, but in terms of the, 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 the sort of ethos of the article, it was, it was more of a historical question about the way Christians thought. Yeah. Right, right. Well, speaking of variants there in the early text, does that, do you think, argue for any particular way in which the early church might have treated the text and therefore what they thought about it? The fact that there are variants, in other words, does that argue implicitly for the fact that they didn't take these texts as seriously as we might today? Yeah, so uh, another way to ask your question is, is does, there's multiple ways to measure attitudes. Mm -hmm. um, one way to measure attitudes is to, is to look at just what's expressly stated by somebody, right? Yeah. Uh, which is what my article did. My article looked at what Christians actually said about their attitude. Well, that's a, that's a way to measure attitude, right? What they say about their attitude. Yeah. They say, I don't think you should change the text. Well, that should wait. That should give us some, some uh, particular evidence. But there's another way to measure the attitude of early Christians, and that is, did they change the text, right? Mm -hmm. Did they modify the text in substantive ways? Um, and the answer to that can give us an insight into attitudes, too. And here's the paradox we find within early Christianity. As I said in the article, both things are true. On the one hand... Many people said you shouldn't change the text, and the, and the verbally stated attitude was clearly don't change it. But then on the flip side, we actually have a lot of early manuscripts where there was a lot of changes. Some, of course, were, were unintentional, but some weren't. Some were more intentional. And so you have this paradoxical situation in early Christianity where some uh, were saying don't change it, and then others were saying uh, by their actions that you can change it. Um, and I would imagine some of those people are probably even the same people. Some people would probably say one thing and do another. And then there's probably other people who would say one thing and actually follow it. And so what you realize about early Christianity is it was a mixed bag. Some people took it more seriously than others. And I think to some extent that's why we have a, a mix of early Christian manuscripts. Some manuscripts are very well copied, and some manuscripts are very poorly copied. And so what I concluded in my article is that, generally speaking, Christians have an attitude of fidelity to copying their books, but apparently some didn't follow it mm. for whatever reasons. Now, they didn't, their lack of following it didn't ruin the textual tradition in such a way that we couldn't recover it, but apparently some people didn't follow it. Um, and so we have to at least reckon with that reality. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Mike, I'm thinking particularly of um, Old Testament citations within the New Testament. And um, this is kind of a general question, but I'm just wondering, that seems, you know, that's two steps removed. Have you noticed anything in the textual transmission of uh, Old Testament texts that is somehow unique to those citations? Does that bear any characteristics uh, that are different from other textual transmission issues with just, you know, straight Pauline writings that, that aren't quoting the Old Testament? Um, uh, well, maybe your question is, 
do 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 New Testament writers quote the Old Testament with more fidelity than they might quote other people? Is that a way to say it? Or less, yeah. Or is there anything unique that you've noticed um, relative the, to the rest of the New Testament? Well, I'll, I'll, I think perhaps what you're getting at is something that most scholars have observed quite readily, is that oftentimes when New Testament writers quote the Old, they don't quote it exactly. Mm-hmm. They quote it very loosely. They paraphrase it. Uh, and they often uh, change the wording around for their own purposes, uh, to emphasize what they want to emphasize. Sometimes they do this because they're drawn on memory. Sometimes they're doing this because that's the way you quote it in the ancient world. In the ancient world, uh, they didn't do direct citations like today. Um, so in the modern day, if you were to be quoted by a newspaper article and the reporter just summarized what you said but put quotes around it, you'd probably sue him and say, I didn't say those words. <laughs> well, in the ancient world, it didn't work that way. In the ancient world, when you quoted someone, you didn't always quote them precisely. Sometimes you quoted them loosely and paraphrase the writing, even though you know the writing was a sacred text. So here's the, here's the principle I think that's really important for people to get, is that in the ancient world amongst Christians, there was a different attitude between copying and quoting, and, and those weren't the same. You would copy with a, with a pretty strict fidelity overall, but when you quote, it was pretty common to take things and make them more loose and paraphrased. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very important principle. Because not only does it explain why some of the Old Testament citations in the New are loose, but also explains why a lot of patristic writers that quite quote the New Testament quote it loosely. Because mm-hmm. it doesn't mean they don't respect the New Testament, it just means that quoting something and copying something are two different enterprises in the ancient world. Yeah, and so I, then I guess the, the follow-up question would be, um, in their paraphrasing, were the paraphrases consistent across the, the New Testament textual transmission? In other words, were the variations from the Old Testament consistent with the different, uh, you know, um, codices? And across and the authors? Uh, no, uh, across the different copies that we have. So, in other words, did they? Um, do you find the same paraphrases across different copies, or were scribes changing even the Old Testament text? This is oh, probably too detailed. Okay, do you see, I see what I mean? Yes. Okay. So you're making a distinction between the original author quoting the Old Testament and the scribe copying the embedded quote. Yeah, I'm sorry, I wasn't clear on that. Um, All right, so uh, my earlier point was dealing with just with what the authors, the original authors of the New Testament, would quote loosely. But when the New Testament scribe would come around and and copy the New Testament book, in which was an Old Testament quote embedded, they would copy it with fidelity. Uh, They would copy it quite strictly. Hmm. However, because it was a book they were familiar with, they were more tempted to adjust Old Testament quotes from time to time than perhaps other texts. Because they knew those Old Testament writings. Okay. And so what we see scribes doing is what we call harmonizing. Mm-hmm. Is they'll take an Old Testament quote that, say, Paul uses, and they're like, well, that's not quite how it was written in their understanding of the Old Testament. And so they think that maybe the copy in front of them is wrong, and so they correct it based on their own understanding of what the Old Testament says. <laughs> that happens. Uh, and so that may be getting more at your point, Jared, is that scribes may have been more apt to correct Old Testament citations because they were books they were familiar with, rather than correct just any old word that Paul happened to say. Yeah, that's helpful. Okay. it's interesting. Now, part two of this book uh, is the manuscript tradition. There's all, all sorts of uh, essays and contributions on different early texts. There's one on Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Um, I'll just leave this really wide open, but what would you like to feature about the early texts here, um, and, and what might our listeners be interested in uh, regarding these early texts? Oh, wow. That's a big section, isn't it? Um, <laughs> sure is. <laughs> uh, let, me put, let me say this. If you're uh, new to the world of textual criticism, you don't want to start with section two. <laughs> uh, if you're uh, having trouble sleeping at night, you may want to start with section two uh, because it might put you to bed pretty quickly. Um, it's very technical. Lots of charts, uh, lots of uh, you know, micro a- analysts of individual uh, passages of, 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 uh, or individual manuscripts for books. Basically, the middle section of the book is designed to say to the reader, here's the, here's the most up-to-date information we have on, say, the Gospel of Luke. Mm. Here's all we got before the 4th century on the Gospel of Luke. And by mm. the way, just in case it wasn't stated earlier, this is all 4th century and earlier. We're not mm. going outside that window. So basically, the essays were designed to tell the reader, here's all we got about Luke before the 4th century, or here's all that we have about Paul before the 4th century. And here's, generally speaking, how those manuscripts look. Are they reliably copied? Are they a mess? What have you? And so it's actually a, a reference piece is the best way to see it. You would, you would flip to one of these articles to sort of get the latest and greatest yeah. in terms of what's going on, but you wouldn't really read it straight through, uh, uh, so to speak. 
That's quite useful, though, just to remind uh, listeners of the value of this book. I mean, it's it's got everything in there for the expert, for the professor, for the person contributing to the Bibles that we have on our desks. Uh, that's what's here in in part two, especially of this book. Yes, and these are some of the top scholars in the mm-hmm. world in these areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you, if you were to collect the main players in textual criticism. We were blessed to be able to, to compile them in one volume. I mean, you look at this list from from Wasserman to Hernandez to Juan Chapa to Peter Head, Chris Tuckett, James Royce, J.K. Elliott, Peter Williams. I mean, th- that's that's the who's who mm-hmm. yeah. uh, in textual criticism. Dr. Kruger, I know this question is not directly re- related to this, but asking for all the pastors who are listening to this who have dabbled with trying to do some textual criticism um, in their own, you know, wrestling with the scriptures— how and this is a big question. I know that I could have a broad answer to it, but how trustworthy is Alon and Max Metzger's commentary to the UBS? Great question. Um, I, I'm 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 actually quite comfortable with the Nestle Alon text. You probably know it came out in the 28th edition. Yeah, just here. Um, there weren't even that many changes to to just to to, to that were noteworthy, which tells you something, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, just for our listener, the fact that you could come out with a finally, after all this time, a 28th edition and hardly any changes tells you something about the state of the text, which means that it's just it's stable. Every time we find something new in the sand, it doesn't really change much. That 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 fact alone should be very encouraging to to any Christian yeah. that they keep finding new manuscripts. But the text that's printed in your New Testament doesn't really ever change in any substantive way. Um, so the Nestle Alon 28th. Uh, edition. It doesn't change much. I have a lot of confidence in it. I think it's uh, pretty reliable. And there's probably not that many occasions where a pastor has to sort of worry himself over going back and redoing the work. I don't know if there's a new commentary out on the 28th edition. The commentary I know about is on the 27th edition. Mm-hmm, right. um, uh, and uh, I really like it. I, I'll, uh, Metzger does a good job of being very fair and balanced. Most of the discussions there I would 100% agree with. There's a few I may not agree with, but they don't have much much meaning one way or the other. I mean, you'll find that most variants don't change hardly anything. There's all this hoopla, but at the end of the day, whether you go with A or B, it doesn't really have any theological import at all. There's only right. a very, 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 very small number of variant variances within the uh, New Testament where there's debate that matter. It's mm-hmm. just, you can't use really any at all. Uh, and so that, I think, tells you something. It's just, it's a bit of a tempest in a teapot when all's done. Mm. That's helpful. Thank you. That's wonderful. Well, the third portion of this book, uh, early citation and use of New Testament writings, uh, you know, thoroughly interesting as well. Um, we should talk to your co-editor at some point directly, but could you tell us a little bit about his contribution here in these very words, methods and standards of literary borrowing in the second century? Yeah, Chuck Hill is, a, is an excellent scholar. If you haven't had him on your show, uh, wow, he is um, he's he's uh, he's tremendous. In fact, if you really want to talk to the expert, you should have asked him on. I think <laughs> um, so. Uh, but he 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 and I are, are good friends, and I was excited to, to uh, edit this volume with him. He wrote, in my opinion, one of the most important chapters in the volume, uh, and here's why: uh, critics of the New Testament text will argue against its reliability and its transmission on multiple grounds. But one of their favorite arguments is that when church uh, fathers quote the New Testament that the New Testament text doesn't look at anything like our current New Testament text. And so therefore they say that, look, the church fathers had a New Testament that didn't look like our New Testament. They had a very different text, which tells you that the text is completely unreliable and trans- transmitted wildly. Now, I can't tell you how many times that argument is made in, in scholarly print. Chuck's article was designed 100% to counteract that kind of thinking. His argument is a little bit of what we were saying a moment ago, and that is that in the ancient world, when you would when you would cite someone uh, and quote them, quotations were decidedly loose, paraphrased, uh, and not designed intentionally, not designed to be exact. Therefore, you can't go back and look at patristic texts and say, hey, look, they had a very different New Testament, and therefore uh, you can't trust your Bibles. Now we're saying, look, they're quoting loosely, just like the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament loosely. So it's a fantastic chapter, and I, I highly recommend it. In fact, if you're going to read any chapter in the whole book, is is sort of a to, to find out what's really critical. I would think that other than the introduction, this is a, a very good one. Mm. 
I think maybe just because it's recent, you recently wrote it, uh, one of the things that comes to mind, and, and you mentioned this a bit in the introduction, so this is another uh, one of those broad questions, but um, the distinction between uh, trying to get back to the autograph and um, the term original text. And um, I, you know, I'd recommend a, a piece that Dr. Kruger wrote recently on the Gospel Coalition that kind of addresses this issue in more detail. But um, I'm wondering how how that issue relates to um, a lot of the issues that we're doing, dealing with here um, in the book. Can you elaborate a little bit on the distinction of those terms and concepts? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the article Jared was referring to was just recently put up on Gospel Coalition, and it was actually just a little piece I just kind of uh, wrote real fast because of uh, Justin Taylor uh, asked me to put something together on it. I'd made a comment, actually, in the, in the panel discussion at TGC, um, and uh, about this, and he said, well, hey, that, that's interesting. Why don't you write something on it? Well, the essence of the article is, is to not equate the original text with the autographs. And let me explain what I mean by that. If some people say, look, inspiration and inerrancy are irrelevant terms because they only have to do with the original text. And then they say, and we don't have the original text because the autographs weren't preserved. That whole line of argument gets used again and again. But the problem with that argument, as I point out in the article, is it, pre- it, it sort of presumes that the original text is almost a physical object, almost something that you like can hold in your hand. Um, like, like the autographs are, in one sense, the only way you have access to it. But there's multiple ways you could preserve the original text, and you don't necessarily have to have the autographs to do it. Um, the, the, if you think about it, the concept of a text doesn't nece- necessarily have to exist within a single physical object. Mm-hmm. Um, I argue that the text could be preserved across multiple manuscripts. In fact, that's exactly what we argue. We argue that no single manuscript contains the original text. We don't have the autographs. But we do have access to the original text across a multiplicity of manuscripts. And so I raise the question about why God did it this way. You know, could God have preserved the autographs? Well, certainly he could have. I mean, I guess he could have had it so they were stored away in some vault somewhere. But I, I think God chose to preserve his word in a different way. Rather than preserving it in one autograph, he preserves it across a multiplicity of manuscripts in real time and in real history. And I think in some sense that's better because it keeps us from being tempted to probably no doubt worship uh, the the autographer in some sort of uh, um, uh, fashion like an idol, no doubt. People, some people would probably be tempted to do. Yeah. Uh, and so I think uh, what you have to distinguish is is that yes, we don't have the autographs, but that doesn't necessarily mean we don't have the original text. And I think those those are those are important that we carefully distinguish the two. Mm. Uh, Dieter Roth writes here about Marcion in the early New Testament text. Why is Marcion such a significant figure, and why is it important to look into his church and the, their use of the text? Yeah, Mar- uh, Dieter did a good job on this article, which I appreciate. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you, you may not know Dieter was a student here at RTS Charlotte and, and actually a, 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 one of my first TAs here. Uh, and uh, he actually did his uh, some of his work there at Westminster, as many of you no doubt know. Um, Dieter, when he was here as a student, I had talked to him about one of my own thoughts about the transmission of the New Testament text, which is, getting a, a handle on Marcion's text. Um, because if you could get Marcion's text, you would have the earliest, one of the very earliest copies of, uh, of the Gospels, because Marcion wrote around 140 AD. And so if somehow you could find access to Marcion's text, you'd have access to the text of the Gospels around 140, which would be extremely early. However, in order to pull off that project, it's extremely complicated because in order to get access to Marcion's gospel text, you have to actually extract it out of later patristic writers that quote Marcion, namely Tertullian and others. And so think of how complicated this is. Mm-hmm. You have a guy like Tertullian quoting Marcion, who then is citing the New Testament. So you have like three layers of, uh, of, of uh, citations going on. It's like the telephone uh, game. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, Dieter's... <laughs> Uh, Dieter's a very, very bright guy, and, uh, and I, I think you know, he's maybe one of the few who could have pulled this off, truthfully. Um, it's a project that was, was, was outside of my uh, uh, purview at the time. And so he's done a great job reconstructing Marcion's text. And this is, uh, this is gonna, he's eventually going to publish this, but it's going to be a real uh, good piece of work uh, that, that uh, it's great to have someone like him doing. In his article here, he simply talks about what we can learn from Marcion's text and what we can't learn from Marcion's text. Uh, one of the things I think that's interesting about Marcion's text, and I'll say this here, is that Marcion's text, even in 140 AD, does seem to exhibit harmonization with the other Gospels. 
And this is interesting. So, for example, if you take Marcion's Luke in 140 AD, it does exhibit harmonization with Matthew and with Mark. If that's true, then what does that tell you about the Luke that Marcion had in 140 AD? It tells you that it may be, in the mind of the scribes at least, already was seen as a unit with the other Gospels, which suggests that by the early 2nd century, the fourfold Gospel was already something that was operationally relevant in the mind of scribes. So I think that's tremendous evidence for an early date for the fourfold Gospel. That's fascinating. I uh, just on gospels. I'm looking at. I know we're wrapping up here, but wondered if you could. You've written on apocryphal gospels on uh, your website before, but um, chapter 19 is early apocryphal gospels in the New Testament text. It seems like apocryphal gospels act in just the the broader culture as um, kind of an apologetic against um, you know our canon and, and scripture. Sometimes just knowing that there's a gospel of Thomas, you know, is supposed to put a kink in it. Um, so I was wondering if you could just um, you know, give some highlights of um, what Stanley Porter is doing in this chapter and just your own take on um, how apocryphal gospels function in uh, what you're trying to do. Yeah, uh, Stan's a great scholar and a good friend, and he did a great job on his chapter. Um, he's basically saying, can we learn anything about the New Testament text from the, from the apocryphal gospels? His overall conclusion is uh, a negative one. And when I say negative, I don't mean bad negative. I just mean uh, he, his, his argument is that, look, you, you you can't really rely on apocryphal gospels to tell you all that much about the New Testament text because of the way they quote it and so on and so forth. Mm. But the positive side of that, um, even though uh, Stan doesn't get into that much in this particular article, but to your question, Jared, the positive side of that is that apocryphal gospels are great evidence for the existence and use and popularity of the canonical gospels, precisely because many, if not most, apocryphal gospels are simply dependent on the canonical ones. They copy it shamelessly, or they copy it and modify it, or they clearly are using it as a launch pad to do their own thing, but still are using uh, the, the canonical Gospels. Mm-hmm. And so what I always tell people is that when you look at a, a, a Gospel, like the Gospel of Peter, for example, it is actually evidence that the canonical Gospels were received and valued because the Gospel of Peter basically borrows from them. Moreover, the Gospel of Peter doesn't only borrow from the canonical Gospels, but tries to fill in the gaps left by the canonical Gospels. And this is what a lot of apocryphal Gospels do, by the way, is that whatever's not covered in the canonical ones, people try to fill it in by making up stories about what might have happened in the gaps. And that if someone's filling in the gaps, that, has to, that means that there has to be gaps to be filled in, which means there were already canonical Gospels in place. And so I think that the, the existence of apocryphal Gospels is actually quite good evidence that the canonical ones were already functioning as Scripture by that time. Hmm. That's great. Yeah, it's actually quite fascinating. There's so much here, and in so many of these chapters, we've only uh, either haven't spoken about them or just touched on the surface. I do encourage people, if they're interested, to take a look at this book. Uh, the Early Text of the New Testament, edited by Charles Hill and Michael Kruger. Uh, but of course, if you'd like more of an introduction to some of these themes, you can at least get started at Cannon Fodder, which is Michael J. Kruger. Com. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Kruger. It's been a great discussion. We've really appreciated it. Thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun. Let's do it again soon. Oh, we Definitely. hope to. Uh, we'd also like to point people back to the website as well. Uh, the regular listeners will know we interviewed Michael's wife, Melissa, just a few weeks ago on her book, The Envy of Eve, which I've uh, got a lot of received a lot of great feedback on that episode. Uh, it's just a delight to listen to. And uh, that book is, very, is, is a very important one and a very useful one as well. And as you were kidding before, Mike, uh, more widely read than your books? <laughs> By a lot, yes, <laughs> and, uh, and deservedly so. You know, I sh- uh, yeah, different so I target sh- audience. Yeah, I should mention. I just noticed that the Kindle version of this book that we're talking about is only a hundred dollars, and so it's <laughs> it's a lot more reasonable. <laughs> I just did a review of uh, a book, Trinity and Organism, is a book on uh, on Bovink uh, with um, Carlton Wynn, and we were remarking that book was also probably a hundred and ten bucks. That one's from TNT Clark, but the Kindle version only twenty two dollars. So you, you must be getting a lot of really great bits here with this OUP title. But I, you know, we it never lack for quality and scholarship in Oxford University Press. I'm I'm always impressed with their work, and so um, you know you you can be confident that you're getting uh, world you know renowned scholarship here in this title, but also a highly 
um, high quality volume, great binding, good typography, everything here uh, with this book. You can be confident in that. So check it out if you're interested. Uh, get a hold of this book. We do also want to point people to various websites. You can visit uh, RTS online at rts.edu. Uh, the Charlotte campus, I believe, is rts.edu slash Charlotte. Uh, if you're interested in Reformed Theological Seminary, a lot of great scholars there, a lot of great work in their training uh, future gospel ministers and other people that are going to serve the church in various ways. Uh, you can also visit us online at reformedforum.org. There you will find information about all of our programs as well as any news and updates that we have. Subscribe to our email newsletter. We send out uh, a newsletter once a month. If you visit us right on the homepage of our website, uh, you can add your email address. We won't share it with anyone. We don't spam you. Just... Uh, just one newsletter a month, and that's a great way for us to stay in touch with you. But if you'd like to contact us, uh, just email us at mail at reformedforum.org. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>